0: As we come to the end of chapter 12, these gospel chapters, they, they quite often are made up of, of lots of small segments that are joined together by the gospel writers. And as we come to the end of chapter 12, I was quite keen to share with you what chapter 12 has been about, because it's, it's been about a lot of different things, but it's actually been about one thing. During his public ministry, people hated Jesus. chapter 12 is a chapter that records a lot of this opposition. It begins in in verse 2 of the chapter. If you remember, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the occasion where the Pharisees came and and accused Jesus' disciples of breaking the law. You can sense already that they're out to to get these guys. You see it again in verse 10, when Jesus is in the temple and they're trying to trip him up, uh, seeing a will heal on the Sabbath day. And by verse 14, Matthew's made it very explicit. Jesus' public defiance of the authority of these religious leaders means they want to kill him. Okay, so let's not be ambiguous about this here. People didn't, these guys didn't just not like Jesus or prefer not to be around him. They hated him and were planning from here on in how to kill him. So whenever it comes to verse 38, the opening verse of our passage this evening, and we find the Pharisees and the teachers of the law here demanding a miracle from Jesus, we'll have to realize that their, their request isn't a neutral one. It's not a friendly one, certainly. It comes in the context of opposition. And it's probably best to understand their question here as, as flowing on from the events that we looked at with Monty last week. If you remember, the crowd had brought Jesus a man who was demon-possessed, and he was blind and he was mute as a result. Jesus healed him, and immediately there was a debate. By what power is Jesus able to drive out demons? Is it because he's from God? Is it with God's power? Or is it because he's actually in league with these demons? He himself is one of them. He himself is under Satan and therefore has authority over demons. So that's the kind of debate that was raging. These, these religious leaders, they had come down on the side that Jesus was, was of the devil. So I think what's going on here when they come and they demand for a religious sign, it's something like asking Jesus for his credentials. Show us your papers. Who authorized you? to to do these kind of things. Who authorized you to reinterpret the Sabbath as you did? Who authorized you to drive out demons? If you're really God, show us a miracle now on request. Show that you have that kind of power. Prove yourself. And as we read in our passage, Jesus isn't impressed. And he tells them so in no uncertain terms. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But none will be given you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I'm not going to do a miracle to entertain you. I'm not going to do a miracle to convince you that I am God. My one biggest and most significant miracle lies ahead he says and of course he was talking about the time when just as Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days he would be in the belly of the earth dead and the miracle then would be his rising and coming back to life Jesus doesn't seem to have an awful lot of time for for these guys coming and demanding a miracle of him I want to pause here for a moment. I wonder, are, are we waiting for a miracle, some of us, before we'll believe in Jesus Christ? It's a common enough stance, actually, uh, I, I would think. Jesus doesn't encourage it. He, he actually denies that miracles give any real evidence that, that a person is from God he, he tells us later in Matthew's gospel in chapter 24 verse 24 he, he warns us of false messiahs and false prophets who will appear and produce great signs and omens to deceive you so Jesus says even if you see signs and miracles don't be convinced by them not them and themselves they'll deceive a lot of people so here's the thing Although Jesus performed a lot of miracles He never used miracles to say There it is That proves it I'm from God Never did Jesus do that And as we see in Jesus' words He's quite hard words to say To those who demand miracles Before they'll believe in him It seems to me that leaves people stuck a wee bit You know, if, how then do we? Do we believe in Jesus? What is, what is the thing that validates him for us? Well, actually, the rest of the next few verses explain that to us. In verses 41 and 42, Jesus does something a wee bit like what he had done earlier in this chapter. And he, he compares the supposedly religious Jewish authorities with Old Testament pagans. And he, he says the Old Testament pagans are, are better. Quite a controversial thing to do. He says, first of all, that the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Now, now Nineveh. Nineveh is a huge city. Capital of the Assyrian Empire. And probably the only reason that most of us would have heard of it, if we have, is that it's the place that Jonah was sent to. Uh, to, to share that God's judgment was going to fall on that community. Jesus goes on. He says the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. He's speaking of the time when the queen of Sheba traveled uh, all the way from modern day Yemen on the Arabian Peninsula. And she came to Israel to hear the wisdom of Solomon. What's Jesus' point? Why are these Old Testament pagans supposedly uh, better than the devout Jewish leaders standing before Jesus? It's because they listened to what they heard. That's his point. Jesus talks about the people in Nineveh. They listened when Jonah called them to repent. The queen of Sheba came all that way to Solomon. And she listened to the wisdom of God as Solomon shared it with her. Now these Pharisees and these teachers of the law, they're standing before Jesus. Jesus. One greater than Solomon. This is the best teaching the world has ever heard. This is Emmanuel. God with us. God speaking. And they're rejecting him. They're choosing to reject God as he speaks to them. That's why Jesus has these harsh words uh, for these religious leaders of his day. Trying to to sum this up very quickly Jesus calls us to believe in him Not on the basis of any miracles But on the basis of hearing his word That interpretation Is is borne out by a parable Jesus told uh, Recorded for us in Luke chapter 16 You can read it when you go home It's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus Very interesting The conclusion that this parable comes to A rich man ends up in hell And he He asks if he can send a messenger back to earth to warn his five brothers so that they won't end up in hell with him. And the reply that he gets from heaven is very interesting. He's told no. There's no point in sending a messenger back from the dead because if they haven't believed in Moses and the prophets, that is, if they haven't listened to God's word as they've heard it so far, then even somebody coming back from the dead won't be enough to convince them. If our hearts are closed to God and the word of God plainly shared with us, then even miracles can't break into that mindset. That seems to be the point Jesus is making. Dallas Willard explains this reality in one of his books about hearing God. He says, it's precisely our pre-existing ideas and assumptions that largely determine what we can see or hear these ideas cannot be changed by miraculous events alone since the ideas themselves prevent a correct perception of these very miracles are you waiting for a miracle before you'll put your trust in Jesus Christ Jesus says, Don't. Because he he makes the point that no miracle is going to convince you of what you have decided already not to believe. He says, Listen instead to God's Word. Open your heart to, to God's Spirit as he speaks to you and respond to him. Listen to the invitation of Jesus. Turn your life around. And follow him. Don't keep waiting for a miracle. I talked a moment ago about how these chapters in the Gospels are quite often made of of very short little bits um, put together. Well, There's a a wee chunk in the middle here, verses 43 to 45, that I don't want to spend a huge amount of time on this morning, but I don't want to miss them out entirely. Jesus tells quite a strange wee story about a person who's demon-possessed. The demon leaves, but then the demon returns with seven more. So the person ends up in a far worse state than they were at the start. And Jesus says, that's what this generation is like. That's what it's going to be like for this generation. What does he mean? He's painting a picture of what's actually happening for those people gathered around him who are hearing him preach. They're a bit like the guy who's been freed of his demon possession. They have known new freedoms. They have known the benefits of of Jesus and his teaching and his healing. So for the time being, they're better off. But if they don't embrace Jesus fully if they don't draw on him and make him now the center of their lives, if, if a positive response to him doesn't replace what was in their lives before, then actually they're going to end up far worse off. They're going to be more open to evil and, and to evil coming into their lives than they ever were before. And that's the warning of, of this short parable. Folks, I was thinking about this a wee bit, actually well after writing the sermon and just on the way down the road this morning. I wondered if, if a community rejects Jesus Christ, is there a sense in which it's worse off and more open to certain types of evil than one that's never been presented with Christ? I, I wondered about Ulster and some of the, the horrific stuff that's gone on here in, in the past generation and this was in a community that was, was more presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ than, than any other in the world maybe we rejected Christ and, and, and the power of evil that we welcomed into our, our community I, I, I don't know I, I'll leave that with you but I think there's a, a very stark warning here About about not responding to Christ when He's presented to you. And the dangers that we open our lives to at that point. Just for the last few minutes, let's look at the remaining part of this chapter. I said at the outset, this chapter is all about people opposing Jesus, so it's not it's not very positive. But the chapter finishes with a a wonderful positive counterpart to the whole thing. For all those people who reject Jesus, there are some who accept him. And Jesus talks about them in the warmest and the most glowing terms. He calls them brothers and sisters. He says they're like mothers to him. It all happens there in verse 46 to 50. Jesus is doing just what I'm doing here. He's, he's preaching to a crowd, and somebody comes in through the side door, one of the disciples, and he <coughs> clears his throat to get Jesus, it's your mum and your brothers. They're, they're outside. And Jesus doesn't respond in the way I, I would have expected. He, he doesn't go and deal with their issue and then get back to his preaching. Um, instead, he takes this opportunity to, to talk to the crowd about the true nature of family. Who are my brothers? Who's my mum? And he points to the crowd gathered around him. Those who are, are listening carefully and hanging on his every word. He, he says, these guys. These are my My brothers and sisters my my mothers those who do the will of my father in heaven they're they're my, my family it's a very powerful moment but very uncomfortable too I think Jesus seems to prioritize his disciples over his biological family I think we need to think about this just for a moment. I grew up in two families. There was my biological family, where Lutz and nirmgard Ebbinghaus were charged with the responsibility of bringing me and my four siblings up. But I also belonged always to a church family. Uh, So it was, first of all, first ported down Presbyterian And then more recently, and for a good chunk of my life, Hamilton Road, Presbyterian Church in Bangor. That was my church family. So I grew up always very aware of belonging to these two families at the same time. Now, there was a debate that came up once in a while. And it usually happened if somebody came and asked you to do a job in the church, like be a YF leader or whatever. There was a bit of a question mark over which of these families had your first allegiance particularly if you're under pressure for time and so on, and you had to work, if it really was, you know, an either-or situation. And there was, a, there was a wisdom going around, a received wisdom, that after our loyalty to God, our loyalty is to our family and then the church. And that was a framework that would have been applied to a lot of decision-making. And I see one or two people nodding, and maybe you've heard that uh, our loyalty is first to God, then to our families, and then to the church. If you're paying attention here, you'll notice immediately that Jesus might just be challenging our assumptions on this issue. As far as Jesus is concerned, our first loyalty is not to our biological family, but to the family of those who are following Jesus Christ. As far as Jesus is concerned, it's not the family, but the church. And I don't mean by that... Patrick Memorial Presbyterian Church, I mean the body worldwide of those who believe and who follow Jesus. The church is God's most important institution on earth. The church is the place where we're most shaped to become like Jesus Christ and become his followers. The church is the primary vehicle of God's grace and salvation for a waiting and a desperate world. I can feel the struggle here. Because as good evangelical Christians, we, we find this part of Jesus' teaching very difficult. We tend to put the biological family first. And we assume that the biological family is the center of God's plans for the world. We can hardly believe what Jesus is saying in these verses. And, and if I'm honest, I think what we do is we end up just dismissing them and moving on. And saying that was Jesus on a bad day. He didn't quite, wasn't on the money that day the way he normally is. Maybe if we could understand Jesus' worldview at this point, we'll understand better how he was able to say these things. In Jewish thought at that time, a person's claim to be a son or a daughter didn't depend so much on on blood relationships as obedience. If you came along to, a, to a, an older person and said, listen, I, I'm willing to obey you, then in that culture, you, you could easily be seen as a son and a daughter. Obedience was the thing uh, that, that made you part of the family. So suddenly what Jesus says in verse 50 starts to make a lot more sense. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. It's obedience and not biology. That makes you a part of the family of God. Do you see what's going on here? Jesus has now displaced the human family at the the center of of life. The biological family, sorry, at the center of human life. For his disciples, the biological family is not the be-all and end-all. Jesus here creates a new family. And this family must be our first family for those who follow Jesus. Now, it's very, very important that we keep our thinking clear uh, with all that we've said here this morning. Allegiance to the kingdom of God comes before allegiance to our, our biological family. But it doesn't destroy family. The irony is that when we give our full allegiance to the family of God, our biological family flourishes. And it can only flourish fully in that context. Jesus loved ordinary family life. You can see that in his preaching because he talked about it quite a lot. He affirmed marriage, he challenged casual divorce. In a society where children were were seen and not heard, well, probably not even seen either, Jesus drew them out and welcomed them and brought them into the center of things. Jesus spoke out against people who neglected their their aging parents, even if they did so for supposedly uh, religious reasons. So whenever you take Jesus' teaching as a whole, you'll see that he's not against biological family. He affirms it time and time and time again. But he places it under the umbrella of a bigger and a greater first family. The family of those who obey God. So let's go back to our assumption about family life. Our loyalty to God is expressed first through our loyalty to our family and then to our church. We could maybe tweak that a wee bit now that we've spent this, this time listening to Jesus. I think I'd reworded something along these lines. Our loyalty to God is lived out when our biological family finds its fulfillment in the family of God. So our families, we bring them into the family of God and allow them to flourish there. I want to close this morning by offering two suggestions for how Jesus' teaching might apply uh, to our lives. The first one I'm going to to apply just to our biological families, and then the second one to our, our church family. First of all, one implication for biological families according to Jesus the biological family isn't the whole world. Now, some of us still find that threatening, and I understand that. For some of us, that actually might be good news. Because the reality is, your biological family is a difficult place. And to know that your whole identity isn't caught up in that from now until you die is a somewhat liberating thing, also. To know that your primary identity with God lies even outside of that. I wonder if that might free somebody up here this morning. Biological family is not the whole world. You see, there's a paradox here. The family that pursues perfect family life on its own terms, for its own ends, Will only ever create a, a shrunken and a diminished version of what family life could be. It's the family that recognizes its place in the greater family of God and begins to live in that way that discovers that its life as a family is blessed, that it flourishes, that it's enhanced, that it's a, a big and a broad and an embracing and an enjoyable kind of a life. So in a funny way the best thing that we can do in our families is, is to hand them over to God somewhat and to ensure that they find their fulfilment in his family. And the last, uh, an implication for our church family no one should ever be marginalized or excluded in church life on the basis of their status as a biological family. I think churches need to repent here, at least, at least many churches do. It's common for activities in churches to be structured around the biological family. Most of what goes on in church life is designed for, for married couples and their children. There's a real danger that the, the whole thing is, is built around that biological family unit. Well, I think Jesus Christ calls us to something different than that. I think he calls us to a way of living where everyone, regardless of their family status, whether they're old or young, whether they're married or whether they're single, whether they have children or not, is equally valid and equally a part because the biggest thing that's going on here is the family of God now don't misunderstand me I don't think that, that we should neglect family life and deal with the issues that family life throws up and look after our children I hope you, I hope you aren't understanding me to say that but the community cannot be dominated by that, that so called traditional family unit The community must be equally a place for all, regardless of their status as a family. At the end of the day, I think what Jesus is talking about here won't be threatening to any of us once we take it on board and reflect on it and take a step back from it we'll see that what's going on here is that the one who loves us more than anyone has ever loved us calls us and says come, follow me and to all who do that he says you're my sisters you're my brothers you're my mothers and my aunts and uncles you're in this with me. Together we have become the family of God. Folks, there's nothing there to threaten our biological families. Our families will only find blessing the more we find that security in Christ. We've been thinking a lot in this chapter about people who were opposed to Jesus. Fair enough. But we can be his brothers and his sisters if only we respond to him and follow him let's pray